This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. Another particularly difficult loss for the Yankees and another take care of business ho-hum win for the Mets. The Mets are now 73-39. and 39. They are now 34 games above 500. The Yankees are 71-41, and 41, uh, 30 games above 500. So there are exactly 50 games remaining for both teams. We had a caller in the first hour who compared the 96 Yankees to the 2022 Mets, which I, I think is a stretch. He was more comparing Torrey and Showalter and their demeanors. I'll buy that. There, There is one, as I think back to that 96 Yankees season, there is one very strong comparison that I think is important. The Yankees that year were a surprise. Uh, they had a terrific start. The Orioles were supposedly the team to beat in the American League East back then. This was before the Red Sox got Pedro Martinez and started to build up their roster. The Yankees were kind of a front runner that year. They grabbed the lead in the division early. They pretty much ran with it all the way through summer. Because the Yankees were somewhat of a young team that hadn't done that before, they'd only been to the playoffs once the season before and they didn't get out of the first round, you kind of had the feeling the entire season of waiting for the other shoe to drop. All right, is there a similarity there with this Mets season? A little bit. I think there was a little bit of that for Mets fans the first half of that season. But now that Scherzer's back, now that DeGrom is back, and now that Edwin Diaz is doing what he's doing, that is not the feeling anymore. I think we're beyond waiting for the other shoe to drop. I think for the Mets fan now, it's just like pure excitement about what can this team actually do? What is the potential for this team? But there was one similarity. For the Yankees, it happened later. It happened in September. And the Orioles started to play good baseball down the stretch. And the Yankees hit a rough patch. Somewhat like they're in the middle of right now. And the Orioles closed to within two and a half games in September. And there was a game between the two teams in September at Yankee Stadium. And I remember Ruben Rivera, who was a cousin of Mariano, and at one point was actually a bigger Yankee prospect than Mariano, he ran into trouble later because I think he was caught stealing memorabilia out of Jeter's locker and was banished from the Yankee kingdom. But Ruben Rivera came up with a walk-off single in that September game, and that pretty much held off the Orioles' charge, and the Yankees turned things around from there and went on to smoothly win the division championship. The Mets, if you remember, jumped out to the huge lead. It was 10 and a half games at one point over Atlanta, who got off to a bad start this season. And then Atlanta starts playing as well as any team in baseball. The Mets lose Scherzer. They're still without DeGrom. And Atlanta's coming. And they're coming. And they're coming. And they got to within a half game of the, Yankee, of the Mets. They got to within a half a game of the Mets. The Mets never gave up the division lead. They steadied themselves. They stabilized themselves. They got Starling Marte back. Francisco Lindor, Pete Alonso started to hit more consistently, especially Lindor. You got Max Scherzer back. Edwin Diaz took it to another level. Two series now in the last month, you have gone head-to-head with the Atlanta Braves and beaten them each time, including four out of five. And now all of a sudden, here you are, on the night of August 10th with a seven and a half game lead. That is 
the one similarity I thought of when the caller was comparing the 96 Yankees, for those who remember that team, to this year's 2022 Mets. The other similarity by October could be this. They could both be world champions. All right, 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Nick in New Jersey. Nick, how you doing tonight? Hey, Pat, how you doing? Good. Hey, listen, I've been, <laughs> I, you know, listen to basketball and, and all this stuff. You know, I thank God you're talking about the Mets in New York, baby. Let's go. We got some good ball on the on the tube here, you know? We got some great ball in City Field right now, Nick. Oh, you ain't kidding. You got, like you said, you got Scherzer back. We're looking good and better than the Yanks. Oh, my God. It's a real dumpster fire over there. But, hey, listen, New York baseball is New York baseball, you know, you know. I hear you, Nick. You know, it's funny, and thanks for the call. The <laughs> The fan bases can't help themselves, right? The Mets fan, and I do this too. I'm guilty of this too. But doing what I do from the, the chair I'm sitting in trying to analyze the whole thing, I'm looking at two teams all season long. And, and again, I, I made this comment on Sunday when I was on the air here. All season long, these two teams have been on top of the division, their respective divisions. That is so incredibly rare. So... For me, I'm sitting here all season long doing the side-by-side comparison, which is really apt because they're both very good. But it's so funny because the Yankee fan right now wants to throw shade on the Mets. Don't start celebrating too early. Don't punch. Your, don't print your World Series tickets just yet. Slow your roll, Mets fans. What is the Yankee fan saying that for? Like, Seriously. The Yankee fan is so uncomfortable being in the position that he or she is in right now because it's an unfamiliar position. And, and then we got the Mets fan, Nick in New Jersey. Everything's going well for the Mets. Scherzer, DeGrom, Diaz, Alonzo, Lindor, Buck. Everything is going well for the Mets. But he's got to throw in that the Yankees are a dumpster fire right now. Listen, first of all, I would give me a dumpster fire in which the team is 30 games above 500 any day of the week. That's my kind of dumpster fire. All right. Are the Yankees going through a very rough patch right now? Yes. Have they lost back-to-back one-run games in Seattle? Yes. Have they lost seven of their last eight games? Yes. Are they a dumpster fire? They are not. Are they better than the Mets right now? They are not. And I said that even before the Mets officially overtook them as having a better record. You could just see this coming for a month. You know, when the Mets finished the first half of the season the way they did, winning the series against the Braves and then nearly sweeping the series against the Cubs, taking that momentum into the All-Star break. And it's funny because part of what gave you a good feeling about the Mets then was knowing that they were going to do something big at the trade deadline. And guess what? They didn't. They didn't do something big at the trade deadline. Now, the moves, I mean, big's a relative turn if you want. I'm not talking about Daniel Daniel Vogelback, all right? Big's a relative turn. But Vogelback, Naquin, we haven't seen a ton from Darren Ruff yet. Those are the moves that the Mets made to improve along the margins. And lo and behold, because that's how this Mets season has played out so far, those moves have been more impactful than the quote-unquote big moves that the Yankees did make. But it's August 10th, man. All right, we're three weeks away from Labor Day. We're two months away from the end of the regular season. And then you've got to get through the playoffs. All right, DeGrom has been 
every Mets fan's dream these last two starts, but they've been two starts. All right, let's see the third against the Phillies. Let's see the fourth against the Braves. And then let's start building some momentum in that direction. But there is nothing that you don't like about this Mets team right now. It's a great feeling. It was a great feeling. And again, I said this before. You can't overstate the importance of holding on to first place for six weeks without Scherzer or DeGrom. And that is the manager. You know, listen, I'll compare him to Louis Rojas right now. Rojas, Yankees third base coach, good baseball man. Two years as the Mets manager. But two years ago in 2020, and I know 2020 was such a weird season, a 60-game season, the Mets were one of the best hitting teams in the National League. They were one of the best pitching teams in the National League. The playoff field was expanded to eight National League teams that season, and somehow, somehow, it did not include the Mets. Now, what's happening now in terms of how Buck is managing this team is the opposite of that. It's the exact opposite of that. That was the parts are greater than the sum. This is the sum is greater than the parts. And that's Buck. Now, on to the Yankees and their uh, their latest one-run loss today. Almost, almost one of those wins you can, you know, point to later in the season and be like, that really got this team back on the right track. They were throwing a no-hitter against the Mariners, but at the same time, the Yankees hadn't scored yet either. Seattle finally gets its first hit in the sixth inning off of Nestor Cortez, and it's a solo home run, so they take a one-nothing lead. And then the Yankees in the top of the seventh inning against Robbie Ray, the reigning Cy Young Award winner in the American League, who had shut them out so far, coming off the Yankees being shut out for 13 innings the night before. They get a runner on against Ray, who's tiring, over 110 pitches thrown. Kyle Higashioka has a terrific at-bat against Ray, working the count full. And then on the full count pitch, he lines an absolute bullet over the fence in left center field. And just like that, scoreless streak is over, and the Yankees have a 2-1 to lead. Two batters later, Aaron Judge hits its 45th home run of the season, a huge insurance run, and now it's a 3-1 to lead. And the Yankees couldn't hold it. Cortez came out to start the seventh, didn't record an out. Aaron Boone, short of options in his bullpen, brings out Albert Abreu, who had been pretty bad in his three previous outings. We'll make it four because Abreu ends up coughing up the lead. The final two runs scoring on Carlos Santana's two-run home run. And the Yankees couldn't recover from there. So 4-3 to three is the final. Let's get some post-game reaction from the Yankees clubhouse. Uh, first, Aaron Boone. Nestor was cruising along. No-hitter, almost through six. Gives up the home run. Sends him out there to start the seventh where he didn't record an out. So did uh, Boone see if Nestor did anything wrong in his last inning? I don't know. Couldn't put those last two righties away. Haggerty got him the, the inning before on on really one of his few mistakes where he kind of pulled the fastball down and in, and he was able to keep it fair for the home run. Just a little tough putting those guys away. France kind of punched one the other way, get, just getting it by, and then and then I think it was 3-2 to, to uh, Hanniger, too, where it looked like he kind of hung the slider up there a little bit. I don't, I don't know if I noticed much off other than you know those last two guys obviously just having a hard time putting them away. So then he goes to Albert Abreu, 
who on the pecking order of Yankees relievers is very close to the bottom. I mean, Abreu was picked up off the scrap heap in the middle of the season. He was there for the taking for a reason because he has not pitched well over his last four outings now. So Boone was asked if Abreu was the right choice after Nestor. Well, I mean, obviously being a little thin down there today, you know, so, you know, he, he was rested, really had Wandy and, and Efros to, to close things out if I could get there. Um, so wanted him to go through those hitters. Was hoping Nestor could, could find a way to get through there, but felt like I had to go get him at that point. And, you know, Albert was rested and, you know, he's had a couple tough outings here, but for the most part, he's been really sharp for us. He rolled the dice with Nestor. It didn't work. So then your options in the bullpen or Albert Abreu, Scott Efros, and Wandy Peralta. I got to be honest with you. I keep Abreu on ice. You you got to win that game. That was that could have been such an impactful win in a season full of wins. I mean, it would have been win number 72 here on August 10th. But this team is really sputtering right now. The emotion that you saw from the Yankees dugout after the home run by Higashioka, and then, of course, after the mammoth home run by Aaron Judge. It, it just seemed like a huge weight had been lifted off of those guys. And then 15 minutes later, they're losing again. I mean, it's demoralizing. I think you've got nine outs to go at that point, going into the bottom of the seventh inning. And again, you have Efras and Peralta as your top two guys who are available. You know, there was no Holmes available. There was no Chapman available. You've got to go out there with your best guys and make that lead stand up. You know, I would have played that completely different because who's to say that if you throw a zero on the board in the bottom of the seventh, you go to the eighth, you can't tack on another insurance run or two. But instead, you let Seattle grab the lead right back. Now they have all the momentum once again, and it's just a different feel on both sides. I think you got to do what you can to make that lead stand up one inning at a time. I don't like going to your third option out of three options in that scenario. You know what this Higashioka, you know what I was thinking of? Yankee fans, tell me if you remember this. 2009, Yankees were in first place virtually the entire way. Middle of June, they're struggling. They're in Atlanta for a three-game series. Their bats are silent. It's a scoreless game. Around the fifth or the sixth inning, Francisco Cervelli, who was the rookie third-string catcher that year, smacks a solo home run. And Cervelli, who I always liked because he was always fiery and very confident in himself, must be a thing with Yankee backup catchers when you think of Jim Laritz as well. But Cervelli, I just remember him rounding the bases. He wasn't even a home run hitter just kind of like screaming and pumping himself up and pumping his team up. And that was, and Brian Cashman has said this in subsequent years, that was one of the turning points for what ended up being a championship season. And, you know, you do this long enough and you watch sports long enough and you see something like Higashioka's home run today, and I immediately thought of that. Backup catcher, not a home run hitter. Higashioka this year, not much of a hitter at all. But boy, did they need that. But the Yankees couldn't see that through. See, that 2009 game, and this is just one game. I'm not trying to make more out of it than needs to. But in that 2009 game in Atlanta, the Yankees ended up winning the game one nothing. Here, they give the lead right back, and they end up losing the game 4-3. to 
All right, let's go back to the phones. 1-800-919-3776 and say hello to Sam in San Antonio. Hey, Sam. A couple of things I wanted to talk to you about the Mets. First and foremost, I think you were uh, on point with everything that you said about Buck, that it's not a coincidence that all these the Mets that you mentioned are all having great seasons. It's not coincidence. It's all because of Buck. Uh, I'm in my 40s now. Uh, I wanted uh, the Mets to get Buck Showalter when the Yankees fired him back in the 90s. So, you know, better late than never. Uh, so I'm putting in my ploy for uh, for Buck to be MVP this year. Uh, now, the, uh, the, the, the one thing that you did say that I slightly disagree with you as far as the two teams to be concerned about, uh, I'm not concerned about the Dodgers really at all. Uh, and for the following, because they do have some uh, spots on their lineup that are landing spots for, you know, DeGrom and Scherzer are beasts, so they can make it through any lineup. But for our, 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 our second half of the rotation, whoever it's going to end up being, there are some landing spots there. The team that I'm really more concerned about than them are the Astros because of the pedigree. They do have Verlander. That's just nasty. Um, and one other thing that I wanted to say before I'll let you go and listen to your commentary, um, I really thought what the, what the Mets did during this trading uh, season was actually brilliant. Um, it's always nice to have a player like Juan Soto. Of course, who would say no to him? But whenever you make a move of a, for a player to that degree, it always, to at least that first year, has some type of an effect on the chemistry that's already going on this team that's fantastic. So I'm glad they didn't bring in a big name like that to possibly affect that in any negative way. Uh, the moves that they made were more depth moves. And look, uh, I would like to see a chart or a comparison for all the teams that made a decent amount of moves. I would say that these quote-unquote, air-quote, no-names that the Mets brought in are outperforming those other big names that the teams got. Well, if you do a side-by-side comparison, which, which I did, Sam, and thanks for the call, with the Yankees, then the Yankees made what on paper seemed to be more impactful moves than the Mets. And if you do a side-by-side comparison, the new Mets have been better than the new Yankees. Now, again, it's it's 10 days since the trade deadline passed. It's eight days since the trade deadline passed. Just want to respond to his point about not being overly concerned about the Dodgers. Julio Urias, 2.49 ERA. Tyler Anderson, 2.72. Tony Gonsolin, 2.30. Clayton Kershaw, 2.64. The Dodgers are on pace to win 113 games. I think it's fair to be concerned with the Dodgers. And you mentioned the Astros championship pedigree. The Dodgers won the World Series two years ago in 2020. They won it more recently than the Houston Astros. The Dodgers are number one for me in terms of teams that you need to be concerned about. doesn't mean that the Mets can't beat them, but you got to be concerned. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. So Kevin Durant is doubling down on his request to be traded. And when he initially issued his request to Nets owner Joe Sy right at the start of the NBA free agency period in early July, you know, I did give him credit at the time because according to the reporting, it seemed like an amicable conversation between Durant and Cy, who seemed to have a healthy respect for one another. And it was a request. It didn't sound like it was a demand. It didn't sound like, you know, Durant went in there, pounded his fist on the desk, 
and said, trade me or else. You know, like Chris Stapp's Porzingis did once upon a time uh, as a petulant young player for the Knicks. And by the way, when Porzingis did that, he didn't nearly, 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 this goes without saying, have the playing resume that Kevin Durant has right now. Now, that was a month ago. And did the Nets actively look to trade Durant during that time? I think they probably did. You know, the whole thing is burning around Sean Marks. You know, Marks did such a wonderful job taking over a 20-win team that was the worst in the NBA. And within three seasons between his work and Kenny Atkinson's work, within three seasons, they made the Brooklyn Nets, the Brooklyn Nets, an attractive destination for the two premier free agents on the market that year. That's a near impossible task. And I understand that Durant wasn't going to play the upcoming season with his Achilles injury, so you basically had to bite the bullet and pay him $40 million to not play. As it turned out, Kyrie Irving only decided to play about 20 games that first season, and he was never heard from again. So the first se- you basically had to throw away the first season, during which, by the way, the Nets still made the playoffs and played some very entertaining basketball in the bubble. And then we know the Durant path from there we've gone over and over and over it you know the second year for Durant and Irving in Brooklyn was their most promising year when Harden came in played like an MVP I do think if you inject me with truth serum I do think that that Brooklyn team would have won the 2021 NBA championship if a Harden's hamstring doesn't get injured and b if Kyrie Irving doesn't sprain his ankle Even the Irving thing, just that one injury, that ended it. You know, the Nets were going to beat the Bucs that series. The Nets blew the Bucs out of Barclays Center in games one and two in that series without James Harden, with Durant and with Irving. And then in game four, in a close game, with the series now two to one, Irving sprains his ankle. If Irving doesn't sprain his ankle, the Nets probably win game four to go up three to one. Harden comes back at some point, they probably wouldn't have needed him to come back until the Eastern Conference Finals. And then they go on to win the championship. I truly believe that that would have happened because they would have played Atlanta in the next round and then Phoenix. And by then, all their guys would have been healthy. And that was the closest it ever got for Durant in Brooklyn. But now, Durant has made an ultimatum to Joe Sy that it's either he stays, meaning Kevin Durant, or general manager Sean Marks and head coach Steve Nash stays. Which begs the question, is Kevin Durant the worst person you could have as part of your NBA franchise? Is he the worst person you could have part of your organization I mean tell me he's not because first of all his fingerprints are all over Kenny Atkinson getting fired all over Durant never even played for Atkinson and his fingerprints along with Kyrie Irving's are all over that transaction Atkinson the guy who if it wasn't for his work and his development of young players like Spencer Dinwiddie and Jared Allen and Joe Harris, if it wasn't for that, Durant would not have been able to find 
Brooklyn with a map. He found it because of Kenny Atkinson. He got him fired before Atkinson even coached Durant. And now his hand-picked guy, Steve Nash, a two-time MVP, twice as many regular season MVPs as Kevin Durant, a top 75 all-time player along with Kevin Durant. Now, Durant's had a better career, playing career, than Steve Nash, but this isn't some schlub that Durant's disrespecting. Not that that would make it worse, but it kind of would make it, or, or excuse me, better. It kind of would make it a little bit better if this was some schlub that Kevin Durant was disrespecting. He's disrespecting one of the greatest players in NBA history. And by all accounts, I haven't seen one account to the contrary, and there have been many accounts of this guy's life and career. By all accounts, a terrific guy. Is he a good coach? I don't think he is. I think he was severely outcoached in the playoffs last year by Ime Udoka. But he wants another coach to lose his job, and now he wants Sean Marks to lose his job, which leads me to ask this question, who is Kevin Durant? He's been in Brooklyn for about 35 minutes. He's been injured. He's been healthy. He's played well. He's come up small in the playoffs against the Boston Celtics. He's been petulant. He's asked for a trade. He's gotten one coach fired. And now he wants to get another coach fired along with the general manager who helped build the entire infrastructure that Durant was attracted to in the first place. I mean, just when you think that this man, this all-time great player, all-time great player, a lot of people have him on their top 20 list. I might have him on my top 20 list. Top 20 of all time. Every move this guy makes makes him turns him into more and more of a joke. Kevin Durant is a joke. And when he requested his trade back in early July, I went through that top 20 list of all the greatest players in NBA history. And you can't tell me one of them who is considered a joke. You know, you start with the top echelon of Jordan and the centers, Russell, Kareem, Wilt, LeBron, Larry and Magic, Tim Duncan, Shaq and Kobe, Hakeem Olajuwon, Steph Curry is up there now, Moses Malone. I mean, stop me. Oscar Robertson, Jerry West, John Havlicek. Do me a favor. Stop me when I get to the joke. I mean, the joke is Kevin Durant. He operates as if he couldn't care less what people think of him. He couldn't care less the way he operates. If that were true, you could kind of respect him. But I don't know if there's anybody who cares more about what people think of him. And I always go back to this question. Who is advising this man? Who is giving Kevin Durant career advice? He's famously linked to Rich Kleiman, his business partner, his manager. You, you would think that that's Kleiman's role in this entire thing, to advise Kevin Durant.
I mean, I don't. I've never met Kleiman. I, I think he's probably a smart guy because he's been smart enough to latch himself on to Kevin Durant and reap the benefits of his hard work on the court and his playing brilliance. But my God, because of that hard work and that playing brilliance, there could have been such a different narrative written about this guy's career. And each and every year, just look at the last four years. When he won back-to-back NBA Finals Most Valuable Player Awards in 2017 and 2018, he was just about at the pinnacle. And then in 2019, somehow, he elevated himself even more because he was brilliant during those playoffs, and then he ruptured his Achilles, and then when he saw his team was in trouble in the finals against the Toronto Raptors, he pushed his body to the limit to get back to join them to help them. It was valiant. And for the first quarter and a half of that game in the NBA Finals in Toronto, I get goosebumps thinking about it. This guy was practically on one leg. He couldn't miss. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy is going to help them win the championship on one leg. And then unfortunately... After the jumper, we all know the scene. He goes crumbling to the court, leaves immediately, ruptures his Achilles. But it was it was heroic. It's what we want from our sports stars. You can't say anything about that. His popularity, the respect that people had for him at that point was as high as it could possibly be. What has he done since? He's left that situation in Golden State gone to Brooklyn, gotten one coach fired. Now he wants to get another coach fired. Now he wants to get the general manager fired. I mean, it's just been like one bad, embarrassing decision after another for Kevin Durant. What the end game is for this guy, I have no idea because he's still 33 years old and he's still got four years left on his contract, a contract extension that hasn't even kicked in yet. Although he's already demanding a trade. So I have no idea what the end game is for this guy. But I can't remember the last time Kevin Durant made a good decision to help his public image. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. Part of the package to receive he and Kyrie Irving in 2019 in addition to having to pay Durant $40 million for a year to not play basketball, they also had to sign their buddy DeAndre Jordan, who was a shell of his former self, to a $10 million contract and take playing time away from a young blossoming center named Jared Allen, who, by the way, was an NBA All-Star last season. So add that to the list. All right, let's go to the phones. 1-800-919-3776. Let's go to Jose in Newark. Hey, Jose. Hey, man, how you doing tonight? Thanks for taking the call. No problem. Great. So, Kevin Durant, just to me right now, is the best example of the the modern athlete, especially in the NBA, where they, even at least in their own minds, they're bigger than the teams. They could pretty much go wherever they want. Um, There's no real incentive to really hang out and work through it, as you would see a Jordan or some of the old players who would stick with their teams for five, ten years. And go through the, you know, go through the obstacle course of becoming a contender. Um, 
from what I see, these guys are friends all the way up through AAU. They could they could be coach killers if they want. They're going to get possibly, you know, pretty much virtually whatever they want that comes to a team. And um, I think more than ever, I don't know, you know, where you want to judge Kevin Durant because I see that in Harden. I see it in, of course, Irving. You see what, what Simmons did as well. But it just shines a better light on a guy like uh, Anna Nakumpo yep. who has been Milwaukee and could have gone to a bigger market and decided to stay with his guys and build a championship team. But that's probably going to be more of a rarity than the common, which is going to be guys who, because they could make money outside of basketball, because they're social media personalities and they tend to get a bloated real self-importance of themselves without judging, you know, these guys really do feel that they could get whatever they want whenever they want it. And I hope that instead of people not always including Giannis as one of the best, this will shine a light on him where he's never talked about as a top five and at the very least, apart from his talent, that's a guy that gets it and he's won a championship and he's probably going to win more because he ran the long haul. He's, uh, he allows himself to be coached. He developed himself. He plays with his guys. Um, that's a rarity now. Steph Curry, of course, Thompson, these guys get it. That's why at the end of the road they're in the parade and guys like Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving they're on the back pages for the wrong reasons. I'm a little old school. You know, I grew up a Knicks fan, loving Patrick Ewing. We never won, but I remember teams are teams, and it takes time. It takes time to develop. This is a right-now society now. Everybody wants everything right now. And that's what Kevin Durant is, without judging him. But that's just, to me, he's just a product of what society is right now. And I hate it. But it is the reality. It's what it is. That's, it is. Jose, let me ask you a question. Let, let me jump in because yeah. you mentioned you mentioned you were a Knicks fan during the Ewing years. They didn't win the championship, yeah. obviously, but they had a decade where they were relevant. They went to the, at least the second round of the playoffs every season. Would you trade, as a fan, would you trade those memories for anything? I would not. I would not because even though we didn't win, I knew every year Pat was going to go out there, ice his knees, give everything he had and bust his hump. And I could say that about Oakley, and I could say that about Starks, and it broke my heart year after year when we lost to Jordan, and then we started losing to um, the Miami Heat and the Indiana Pacers. But, again, I'm cut different. I love loyalty. I love getting up every day and being able to look at my team and root for them, even though we don't necessarily win. But I prefer that than a guy who, say, Patrick Ewing isn't happy for whatever the reason, and he ends up jumping ship, and I don't know who's on my team next year. I, I'm a team guy, but I have young kids, man. And they, I, I'm on my fifth LeBron jersey, man. They follow the players now. It's an individual <laughs> thing now. So I, I try not to judge it. I try not to judge it, but I would never. And, and I'm a die-hard blue and orange to the bone marrow Knicks fan. I wouldn't trade those 90 teams because even though we didn't win a championship, um, you know, I love the fight. I love that blue collar. Every day they want to give it their own. We came up short. But, you know, I made up for it with my Yankees. <laughs> so, um, so there you go. That's who I am. That, that's just who I am. But, you know, I, I try not to judge a new generation, like it or not. This is who these guys are. And, um, you know, that's why in a way, man, and not to change the subject too much, and I know you got other callers, that's why I appreciate the Knicks doing it the way they're doing it now. Where we're not just jumping out there trying to bring guys in. We sign Brunson, whatever we overpaid, fine. But we got a good, strong core of young players, 
And if we build that type of team, I would prefer that than trying to catch lightning in a bottle and just bring a bunch of guys here who, you know, you root for them for 10 seconds until they get the next big chance. Well, the, else. So, Jose, they're, they're, they're going to be better. I, I, I appreciate the call. Good call. Uh, they're going to be better. We'll see what happens. But that's what being a sports fan is all about. And I have long said this. If Durant and Irving won the championship two years ago in 2021, let's say Durant's foot is not on the line. That's the game-winning shot. They win the series against the Bucks. It would have been one of the greatest shots in NBA history. Then they beat the Hawks. And then I think they would have beaten the Phoenix Suns in the finals. Let's say they win the championship. Would that have been as special as if the Knicks won a championship in the 1990s with that team and with that core? You know, it's different now. It's different. Milwaukee experienced it because Milwaukee built with Giannis, number one, and Chris Middleton, number two. And then they brought in pieces around those guys. And that's how the championship teams are still built. Look who just played in the NBA Finals. The Celtics, Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, knocking on the door year after year. They finally made it to the Finals. And the team they lost to in the Finals, we know. Steph. Clay, Draymond, Steve Kerr, they grow together. Those are the best kinds of teams. Those are the best kinds of championships. That's not a situation that Kevin Durant appears to be interested in being a part of. This is the Pat O'Keefe Show on 98.7 ESPN. The thing that disappoints me the most about Kevin Durant, and look, my expectations for him right now as a teammate, and a professional are minimal, but he at many, many points during his career um, has appeared to do it the right way. You know, I, I don't doubt that winning is important to Durant and the most important thing to Durant. I really don't. And I can point to other NBA stars like his recent teammates, Kyrie Irving, James Harden, Ben Simmons. Although in that case, I use the term star loosely And winning has not always been the most important thing. For Durant, it has been. So for him to take this heel turn is very disappointing. All right, let's get one quick call in before we uh, hand it over to Larry. Robbie and Mass. Robbie, what's going on tonight? Hey, Pat. How are you? Great show. Um, Listen, uh, I I might have a Ranger point to ask you if you you got a second, but I wanted to talk about the Yankees. You know, I can't blame everything on Boone. I don't like Boone. I'll tell you the one thing that bothered me about Boone today. Not batting Benintendi. He, he plays too much by percentages. It's like, you got Aaron Hicks is a terrible hitter. Aaron Hicks is having a horrible year. Why he's even on this team still, I have no idea what the fascination with Cashman is. But here's the deal. I mean, Benintendi is finally getting a go, and he benches him today for the left hand. I mean, because he's left, because he's uh, going against Robbie Ray. It's just ridiculous, especially when you have no Stanton, and you got guys that are basically in slums. Glaber's been horrible. Glaber has been a disaster. Let me ask you. Do you think this team is put together the right way? And also, do you think this team has overachieved this season? Let's be honest. I mean, you didn't think that Nestor Cortez was going to pitch that great this year. And he pitched great today. And what does Boone do? Pulls him out after 93 pitches. I am so sick of Aaron Boone. I mean, why do you put Albert, Albert Abreu as your best option? Lewis Litke is a left-handed guy. Why isn't Lewis Litke pitching to Santana in that situation? I mean, if you want to go by percentages, I mean, he's talking about percentages about you know playing Aaron Hicks, who stinks from the right side. He stinks from both sides. But he won't bat Ben Intendi. But Ben Intendi is supposed to be there. And, and Ben Intendi didn't bat leadoff. Ben Intendi bats behind a guy with 45 home runs. I am sick and tired of watching Judge get up with nobody on base. 
Does LeMayu have to hit a thousand? You know, really, does LeMayu have to hit a thousand in order for Judge to get up? Why is Judge batting second? Pete Alonso bats fourth. I mean, it makes no sense. Get some table setters in front of Judge. He'll score more runs. When a team scores three runs in 27 innings, there's obviously a problem there. So can they turn it around? Yeah. But I'll just get your, your, your opinion, Pat, about how the team is constructed. And also, I wanted to ask you if you like the, uh, the uh, Trocek uh, deal with the, with the Rangers and so, as far as that. And then, then yeah, I, like, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. I like the Trocek, Robbie. Thanks for the call. We'll wrap it up. I, I do like the Trocek. Just to add some depth, the Rangers uh, didn't have a ton of flexibility. So to be able to bring in a bona fide player like that, um, you know, to stabilize the, the, the top of their formation was solid. I agree with the Benatendi point. Um, and the thing, the thing that got me for Boone today was was the pitching move. If you have a chance to win that game, you can't go to Albert Abreu, Wandy Peralta, Scott Efros. Those are your options. 